it's time to take the quiz. Five questions, five minutes a day, five days a week. Take the quiz every weekday at thequiz.fox and then listen to the quiz podcast to find out how you did. Play, share, and of course, listen to the quiz at thequiz.fox. From the most powerful city in the world, a new generation of conservative talk. Fair, fresh, fun. It's the Guy Benson Show with Guy Benson. It is Wednesday, November 9th, 2022. I'm Guy Benson. Welcome into the Guy Benson Show. Glad to have you all here. GuyBensonShow.com is our website. Podcast is free every day on demand. Follow us on social media at Guy Benson Show. That's Twitter, also Instagram. Catch me tonight on Special Report. I'll be on the panel with Brett Baer. And that should be very interesting this evening, as it always is, but particularly interesting the evening after a big election. Here on the radio side, our lineup is as follows. Byron York joining us in the next hour. We are expecting to hear from President Biden. He's going to give remarks and take questions. We're told in the next hour. We'll see if he's on time. So we might have to flex Byron and some of our other guests. We'll see. But we will carry at least some of what the president has to say in our middle hour. But Byron here with reaction. Molly Hemingway here with reaction. Former governor of New Jersey, Chris Christie, here with reaction to what happened last night. A midterm election that we have been talking about for months, covering in depth. We gave you some inside info on the show yesterday about Florida, and boy, was that right. It actually massively outperformed my heightened expectations. And that was about it, though, for the Republicans. Huge, huge night in Florida. A few bright spots here and there, but a red wave did not happen. And as things stand, as we come on the air the day after the election, we still don't know who controls the House or the Senate starting in the next Congress. And what's interesting is both are sort of up for grabs. I think it is probably likely that Republicans will still win the House narrowly. And then the Senate is going to come down, surprise, surprise, to the three states that we have been hammering on the two out of three, at least two of these three have been the ones that we've been focused on. Nevada and Georgia in particular, Pennsylvania went to the Democrats, and now Arizona also in the mix. And before I get to just a postmortem from last night a little bit, I want to give you an update on those three states in particular. Arizona is far from over because that's one of those blue mirage states if you're familiar with that parlance, meaning things were looking better earlier for Democrats because of the sequence in which they count the ballots there. And then the red wave of Election Day comes in. They're still counting a lot of those ballots. And that's the thing. We'll get to Florida later on in the show. I have a lot to say about Florida. But whatever you think of Florida, every state should adopt its election system, the way they count, The way they run the elections, it is a well-oiled machine in that state. And they had their big, embarrassing meltdown, we all remember, in the year 2000. 
They committed themselves to fixing the problem, and they did. And so by like 11 p.m. Eastern time in a huge state, we had something like 98% of the vote in and a very clear, reliable, prompt outcome. Unlike in Arizona, where I just saw a stat from one of the stat crunchers out there, that there's close to 500,000 ballots still uncounted. Almost half a million ballots still uncounted in Arizona. Now, there's a possibility that a good chunk of those ballots favor the Republicans, which is why it looks like Carrie Lake very well could still win the governorship. And if the ballots break red enough in a not totally crazy way, the Senate race is not over yet. So that's something that we're keeping an eye on. That's Arizona. Nevada also not over. They're going to be counting that for a long time. The Republicans have surged ahead in the statewide races, but there are still early ballots to count. They do it in a very strange way out there also, in my opinion. So the question is, are there enough early ballots to be counted in Clark County, which is where Vegas is, and are they Democrat-heavy enough for the Democrats to come back and win one or both of those races? The Senate race is closer. The governor's race is a little bit more breathing room with the Republican on top. Adam Laxalt also ahead. And we'll see. Even the Nevada experts aren't sure. So that'll be fun, won't it, watching these ballots come in, get counted excruciatingly hour after hour. We'll get, like, ballot dumps. Will the Republican leads hold or not? It's the opposite effect in Arizona. So, look, it is absolutely possible that one or both of those states go red in one or both of their statewide races. And then there's Georgia, where Governor Kemp won easily. I will probably have much more to say about Kemp and his achievement either today or later in the week on the show. I want to focus on him a little bit, but let's just set that off to the side. He won so decisively in Georgia last night that even Stacey Abrams conceded the race. And as you know, that takes a lot for her. I actually wondered when she conceded, was it a twofer? Did she concede both of the races that she lost to him? Probably not. Probably just this most recent one. But the Senate race is headed to a runoff. Neck and neck. These two candidates are separated by, what, 35,000 votes? About like a fraction of a percentage point, I believe, at this point. And all of that doesn't matter anymore. Neither of them got to 50%. So we chug ahead to December the 6th. And it is entirely within the realm of possibility that that Georgia runoff will determine control of the U.S. Senate. Again in Georgia. Again in a runoff. Warnock is leading a little bit. But again, it doesn't matter. Both Republicans were leading on election night in 2020. They both lost in the runoff in 2021 for a variety of factors. We'll probably do a deep dive into the Georgia runoff at some point moving forward here. But I just want to give you those updates. Arizona, Nevada, Georgia. Bigger picture last night, a lot of things to say. I gave you my predictions on this show. I wrote them down at townhall.com. I was not shy about them. I was less exuberant 
and bullish than some of the people we had here. 53, 54 Republican Senate seats. Republicans are going to be up at 240, 245, 250 House seats. I was shooting a little bit lower. I was guessing like 235 on the House side, 51 on the Senate side, and maybe a net gain of one in terms of governorships. What it looks like is the Republicans will be somewhere between 49 and 51 Senate seats. We don't know. Could be that we just spent, what, over a billion dollars collectively on these Senate races, probably more, to end up right where we started at 50-50. That could happen. The House, if Republicans win it, and there's, I think, a pretty clear path for them to get there, they might have almost like the opposite of what the Democrats have right now, which is a very teeny, tiny majority, which could be absolutely chaotic in terms of trying to govern and, like, do whip counts, especially in a cranky, rough-and-tumble Republican conference. I mean, that could be very interesting. But it, they're not going to get close to 235. If they can get past 220, possible, uh, that'd be like a tiny bit of legal room for leadership, but not much. And what is so incredible to me is that in the face of such horrible fundamentals, we talked about that endlessly here. Maybe you got sick of it, but the fundamentals were very, very bad for the Democrats. And yet what the voters delivered was more or less a status quo election. And that could be weird. Like if the Republicans end up winning the House and the Senate, which is still possible, they could still win both. That doesn't really feel like a status quo election. But if you look at the actual seats changing hands, in many ways, it is one. This was not an endorsement of Democratic leadership. They didn't want to empower Democrats more, as we can see. But they also were not rushing into the open arms of the opposition party, particularly types of candidates that were not, let's say, kind of like normal, more traditional Republican candidates. As of right now, and you can fact check me on this, I I might be missing one somewhere, but I do believe as of right now, there is not a single statewide governor or Senate incumbent who lost in either party anywhere in the country. Lisa Murkowski might lose in Alaska, we don't know yet, to another Republican. Catherine Cortez Masto might lose in Nevada, we don't know yet, still counting. But at least as of now, every single incumbent, senator and governor, won. And very few House seats exchanged hands. It's a status quo election. Now, I think it'd be a better status quo election, like slightly preferable for my taste, if Republicans ended up winning one or both houses of Congress, just to absolutely put a stop to the Biden agenda, because we can't afford more of that. But I do think that given the state of the economy, crime, inflation, the president's unpopularity, first midterm of a new presidency, one that is not viewed favorably by most voters, for the Republicans to not achieve even like a minor wave is an indictment of the opposition party. Look at the types of Republicans who won hit their marks, or massively outperformed in some cases, a lot of these governors. Sununu in New Hampshire, DeWine in Ohio. 
Kemp in Georgia, Reynolds in Iowa, and my goodness, DeSantis in Florida, and then some down there. As I continue to tease my Florida analysis coming up, I think, later this hour. But Mark Thiessen was on the coverage last night. There's a huge crew at Fox in New York and D.C., a lot of people giving analysis, including yours truly. But Mark Thiessen, who's been on this show multiple times, I think he was exactly right. This is not fun for conservatives or Republicans to hear, but I think it is the truth. And so I want you to hear it in case you missed it last night in cut five. I think there's a broader issue here, which Mm -hmm. is that. So think about this. We have the worst inflation in four decades. The worst collapse in real wages in 40 years, the worst crime wave since the 1990s, the worst border crisis in U.S. history. We have Joe Biden, who is the least popular president since Harry Truman, since presidential polling happened and there wasn't a red wave. That is a searing indictment of the Republican Party. That is a searing indictment of the message that we have been sending to the voters. They looked at all of that and said and looked at the Republican alternative and said, no, thanks. That is, that is a re- the Republican Party needs to do a really deep introspection look in the mirror right now because this is this is an absolute disaster for the Republican Party and we need to turn back. I mean, he said it. If you look at the Fox News voter analysis, which is our version of exit polls, a little bit more elevated and modernized. The economy was the top concern of voters. Republicans consistently had a big advantage on the economy. A majority of the electorate last night blamed the Biden administration, their policies for the inflation. Biden's disapproval rating, president's disapproval rating among last night's electorate was 57 percent disapproval. Three quarters of the electorate said we're on the wrong track in this country. And yet Republican turnout was pretty good. Democratic turnout was, you know, maybe a little bit better than expected. But independents did not break heavily toward the Republicans the way I think a lot of people expected them to. And that's part of the reason why I think we had yet another polling mess on our hands in a lot of cases. And I said on the show the other day, polling misses go in both directions. And we actually saw both directions at play yesterday. There were some polls that badly missed for the Republicans, where the Republicans hugely overperformed their polls and significantly underperformed their polls, and vice versa. Very interesting stuff. I want to get to a lot more here about what happened last night, about some of the concerns, about some of the narratives that are already starting to form. Do I agree or disagree with some of them? Then just the counterpoint to everything, Florida. A wave the likes of which we have never seen in that state. My sources were right and may have kind of understated what was about to happen in the Sunshine State. All of that still ahead. There's so much to get to. Plus, the president's going to speak next hour. Our guests, Byron York, Molly Hemingway, Chris Christie. Don't go anywhere. It's The Guy Benson Show. The Guy Benson Show. More next. Precise, personal, powerful. Is America's weather team in the palm of your hands? Get Fox weather updates throughout your busy day, every day. Subscribe and listen now at foxnewspodcasts.com or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Guy Benson. Welcome back. A couple more notes on last night in the election. With almost no exceptions... Possibly Carrie Lake in Arizona. That's still undetermined. 
But the Democratic strategy that we are very critical of here, I think for good reason, I think it was extremely cynical and reckless, but the Democratic strategy of pouring in millions of dollars, tens of millions in fact, to boost certain Republican candidates seen as fringe or election deniers or too Trumpy or whatever in a bunch of these races to try to get them nominated. So meddling in Republican primaries to elevate the types of people that they feel are both threats to democracy, but also people they want to run against. They did that in a lot of races. And unfortunately, it worked. It worked very well. They were able to select their opponents in a lot of races and then beat them. Now, if the night had gone a little bit differently, they might have been regretting that move. It could have backfired on them. But given what happened last night, overall, almost without exception, as I said, the strategy was successful for the Democrats. And I would just say to Republican voters, conservative voters, in the future and just in general, Perhaps don't give the Democratic Party exactly what they want. When they tell you who they want, don't give it to them. Because obviously they figured out who they want to run against and who they can beat most easily. And they did that in a lot of important races. Now, whether or not that means that the whole, you know, democracy is on the line thing was a successful talking point for them, maybe more successful than we thought it would be. Although looking at exit polling and the voter analysis, democracy was not a top issue mentioned by voters. As I said in the Fox News voter analysis, by far the number one issue was the economy. With Republicans having a big lead on that, and yet it was still at best a little tiny, like pink, shaded ripple. Abortion probably played a role in a number of races Democrats spent Hundreds of millions of dollars on that issue. But I think people attributing the Democratic overperformance, the Republican underperformance to abortion are also kind of missing it. A number of Republican governors, including not in deep red states, who signed significant abortion restrictions into law as governor, won running away last night, including heartbeat laws and a total ban almost in the state of Oklahoma, for example or other restrictions in Florida and elsewhere, they won big. So I think it had an impact some places, but I think that's too tight of a narrative for some people, some wishful thinking. Let's talk Florida. Don't want to miss this next. Out of the gates and ready to go. Hey, it's Hutton with Row. Hot Mike is here on the Outkick Network. We've got your afternoon covered with the latest sports discussion, and it's available wherever you find your audio. Daily analysis and news. He is hot. I am Mike. Actually, my <laughs> name is Chad. His name is Jonathan. But you get the picture. We're going to bring it every single day. Whatever you want to call us, we'll respond to. We just want you to respond to what we're dishing out every day. And while you're here, we hope you subscribe to the podcast, like, subscribe, and share. You know, over these past four years, we've seen major challenges for the people of our state, for the citizens of the United States, and above all, for the cause of freedom. We saw freedom in our very way of life and so many other jurisdictions in this country wither on the vine. Florida held the line. It's the Guy Benson Show. Welcome back. GuyBensonShow.com is our website. 
Our podcast is free every day on demand. That, of course, the voice of a thrilled Governor Ron DeSantis of Florida, who, of course, won re-election. We knew that was coming. And if you tuned in to yesterday's show, especially right at the top, I told you about some of my contacts in Florida saying, dude, this is going to be really something. And we've been covering it pretty faithfully for days, of course, months on the polling and that sort of thing. And, you know, DeSantis was up six or seven there for a while. Rubio was only up two or three in the polling, supposedly. And then things got better and better. Then the polls started looking like DeSantis was up 10 or even 11. And I had trouble. I told you I had trouble believing that. And then you start to see the early vote numbers coming in, the Republicans leading in the early vote numbers, taking over that count and overtaking the Democrats, including in some eyebrow-raising places. And I wrote a piece last week saying the wave that's coming in Florida is going to be biblical. And it was. Just even more of a flood than I realized it would be. So... Based on the conversations I had on Monday, and I shared as much as I could with you yesterday, I came to the conclusion in my mind that it was possible that DeSantis would win by 12 points, and on a really good night, he could win maybe up to 15 points. And the Rubio people said they felt like he could maybe get to a 10-point margin. And by the way, 12 points, 10 points in Florida is crazy. That is a blowout in the state of Florida. I will remind you that just four years ago in the midterm elections of 2018, a Senate race and the governor's race were both decided by less than one percentage point. And the Republicans were both expected to lose based on the polling. They both won, including Ron DeSantis by four-tenths of one percent. He beat Andrew Gillum, thank goodness, by four-tenths of one percent in the state of Florida four years ago. He then proceeded to serve as governor for his first term. And especially when COVID hit, the attacks against Ron DeSantis were unbelievable. They were relentless, They were endless. They were vicious. A lot of them were just desperate and silly, but they came after him with everything that they had. His nickname was Ron Death Santis or Ron Death Sentence. They painted him as an ogre, evil person with blood on his hands who hates everyone. That's what they tried over and over again. Not just the local Democrats, not just the local media, the national media. The reason they did that, of course, and we've talked about this before, is because they are scared of him politically. They have viewed him as a threat. They watched what he was doing, and they were trying to take him out many times. And boy, did they fail, at least vis-a-vis last night and what happened. When the counting was effectively over, I still cannot believe I'm about to say these things. Don't let this just fly by because there's so many different factors last night and a bunch of disappointments and all this dissonance and some uncalled races and counting still happening. That all matters. We're, we're going to follow all of it. But just focus for a moment 
on this reality. Marco Rubio won the state of Florida in his reelection bid by 17 points, 17 against Val Demings, who was extremely well-funded. If memory serves, she outraised and outspent him in the state of Florida. He beat her by 17 points. And then Ron DeSantis, the governor of Florida, the lightning rod of national criticism, was reelected by almost 20 points, 19 and a half points. To call that a blowout is to not come close to capturing how shocking that is. It's interesting, actually, and it's kind of a weird dichotomy in that last night's overall outcome across the country was surprising. Everyone was expecting something of a red wave, including the Democrats. They had no DCCC election night party. They had said Biden wasn't going to speak today. Now he is. They were expecting to get hammered to one extent or another. The Republicans were expecting it. I saw one report that Kevin McCarthy was expecting to gain 60 seats, which is crazy. That was never going to happen. I hope they're better at counting votes if they're in the majority. Like, if they could get to 30 or 40 seats, that would have been a huge wave, given their starting point. Right, Two years ago, Democrats had a disappointing night in the House, a surprising disappointing night, with Republicans gaining double digits. Well, the disappointing surprise this time was for the Republicans. So the overall outcome, no red wave, a surprise. And yet within the context of that national surprise, there weren't that many like shocking, eye-popping individual results, if that makes sense. There were a couple. You know, it's like, oh, Sean Patrick Maloney in New York, the DCCC chairman, he lost. Wow. That would indicate a wave type year. The Biden plus 15 district in Long Island, the Republicans just won. That's sort of a wow. Okay. But there weren't sort of the types of shockers that typically accompany a big wave because there wasn't one. I would submit to you, and this might sound paradoxical, but I would submit to you that in a night of almost no shocks, despite the broader surprise, maybe one of the biggest surprises or shocks was what happened in Florida and the extent of the devastation visited upon the Democratic Party by the electorate down in the Sunshine State. They didn't just say, yes, we want more of this Republican governance. They said it resoundingly. A nearly 20-point victory for anyone ever. It just It doesn't happen there. I would be here ooing and eyeing at a 10-point victory in Florida. And not spinning you, just like it would be really, really impressive to get to 10. And he got to almost 20. How did he do it? Here's a few data points for context. Miami-Dade County, we've been telling you about this. They're expecting to paint Miami-Dade County red. Down at the very southern tip of Florida, urban county, Hillary Clinton... In 2016, won Miami-Dade by 30 points. 30. Two years later, 2018, DeSantis, running for governor, lost it by 20 points. So he won statewide by 0.4%. He lost Miami-Dade by 20 points. 
This year, DeSantis just won Miami-Dade County by 11 points. That is a 41-point swing away from Hillary Clinton's victory margin in the same exact county just a few years ago. 41 points! In Osceola County, Central Florida, south of Orlando, heavily Hispanic, lots of Puerto Ricans, so not the Cuban community down in Miami-Dade, Puerto Rican community, Osceola. Joe Biden won it by double digits. He won that county, losing the state, of course, Biden did uh, in 2020, but he won Osceola County by double digits. Ron DeSantis just won it by seven points. If you look at DeSantis's performance among Hispanics, he won a majority of every Hispanic group. Because it's like subcultures and subcommunities within the broader umbrella of Hispanic, he won all of them. Some of them pretty resoundingly. The one that blew my mind was Palm Beach County. Ron DeSantis won Palm Beach County. Never in a hundred years would I have guessed that. Never. Palm Beach County, like if you're old enough, like I am, to remember the 2000 fiasco that I referenced earlier, Palm Beach County was always one of those deep blue counties where you're like, oh, you you don't want to see more numbers coming in there from Democrats. right? It's one of those blue wall counties in the state of Florida. When they do well statewide, they run up the score in Palm Beach, Broward, Miami-Dade. There's a few others, but like those are the South Florida big blue counties. Palm Beach County went red for DeSantis. I think Rubio barely lost it. DeSantis won it by three points. He stared down all the criticism from the media, from the Democrats, from all these detractors. He led, made some tough decisions, did not apologize for them, defended them vigorously, then went out to the people of Florida and made his case. Did I do a good job or not? And then he won by almost 20 points. Absolutely extraordinary. And by the way, there's another component to this. Because of his massive coattails and because he insisted on a more aggressive redistricting map than even his Republican legislature wanted to give him, and he won that fight, by the way, as he almost always does, because of that, Coattails plus redistricting map. Guess what? Republicans gained four seats in the House of Representatives in Florida alone last night. If if the Republicans win the House, more likely than not, sort of mind-blowing to even say that, that you have to like still wonder the next day, but here we are. If Republicans win the House, Ron DeSantis, and I would also argue, and I will later, Lee Zeldin in New York, even though he lost, They've flipped, it looks like, four seats in New York because of his coattails in a very close race with Kathy Hochul, single digits. DeSantis and Zeldin, and by the way, DeSantis helped Zeldin, they are MVPs for the party. If Republicans can win the House and have a majority, even if it's not a a terribly functional majority, it will be heavily because of Florida and New York. So that was leadership and an incredible Incredible show of force by the governor of Florida. Some of his supporters, huge crowd, loud cheers. Some of them were chanting last night, two more years. 
which is funny. It's a little reference to what I think a lot of people are expecting, which is Ron DeSantis to be very seriously considering running for president. There have been a few reports, oh, he's not going to do it. A certain former president who lives in the state of Florida is openly urging DeSantis not to do it. He's saying he would say some very unflattering things about Ron. Oh, uh, imagine that. Donald Trump saying unflattering things about someone. Perish the thought. He's threatening. He's trying to keep DeSantis out of the race. I saw he gave an interview the other day saying that he made DeSantis. DeSantis is his guy, and DeSantis hasn't been grateful enough. He endorsed DeSantis for governor, and that's the only reason he got the nomination. You know what? That's probably true. I'm not sure DeSantis would have won the nomination for governor four years ago if not for Donald Trump, the sitting president, endorsing him. But guess what? It doesn't matter anymore. He had the opportunity. He won a surprise upset in the general election four years ago, and then he became governor, and that is what matters. What has he done as governor? What is his record? You can thank President Trump for the opportunity, then you have to do something with the opportunity. And Ron DeSantis has done more with that opportunity than anyone in the country, I would argue. And oh, by the way, if Ron DeSantis wants to run for president and he might butt up against Donald Trump, who might announce for president next week, right in the thick of a Georgia runoff, that could be interesting. But if they face against each other, which is entirely possible, if not likely, You know that Trump's going to try to take all the success or the credit for the success of DeSantis and all this. Republicans, I think more than ever, especially with a stark reminder last night, need to focus on winning and who can win elections. You look at the types of Republicans who won last night and the types of Republicans who underperformed or lost. There's a story to be told there. The Republican who outperformed in the most eye-bulging way in the country is the governor of Florida, who already had high expectations of a 10 to 12 point win, and he blew those out of the water. Donald Trump against a terrible, moribund, basement, dithering candidate, Joe Biden. Donald Trump won Florida while losing nationally, of course, by three points two years ago. Trump won Florida by three points en route to a national loss. Ron DeSantis just took Trump's margin and beat it by more than 6x. He beat it by 17 percentage points, if you want a side-by-side comparison. There is a story for Ron DeSantis to tell to the American people if he wants to run for president. That story, I think, was going to be pretty profound and pretty impressive before what happened last night happened. But the epic, historic nature of DeSantis's win in Florida, coupled with the disappointment and underwhelming reality of what happened a lot of other places around the country, some of which I see people already laying at the feet of Donald Trump. I think there's some truth to that. I think some of that is, you know, people jockeying already ahead of 2024. But... I think DeSantis's case just got a lot stronger. He can just compare and contrast what he did in that state in a national environment that didn't go the way Republicans wanted it to. He did what he did in Florida. Others did not. 
And by the way, I'm mentioning all this because this whole fight, this conversation that I'm having right now is just starting. I'm seeing it everywhere. It could get ugly. Buckle up. It will be interesting. I can promise you that. More of the Guy Benson Show after this short break. Fresh conservative talk. Guy Benson Show. It's the Guy Benson Show. Very glad that you are here and listening. So here's the game plan heading into the next hour. We have been told that President Biden is going to come to the East Room of the White House and give some remarks and take some questions from reporters. That is traditionally what presidents do after a midterm election. The famous shellacking line, for example, from President Obama in 2010. Initially, the word was that Biden was not going to speak today. But the White House is apparently, according to Circleback, who was just on MSNBC, I think, she said the White House was giddy about what happened last night because they were expecting to lose badly and instead they might lose just a little bit, if at all. So suddenly the president has an appetite to come talk to reporters and answer questions. We'll see what kind of tone he adopts. We will bring you some of that live whenever he gets going. We also have teed up for us Byron York. Also later on, Molly Hemingway, Chris Christie. A lot of moving parts here that we will bring to you on The Guy Benson Show. One hour in the books, a lot more still to get to. Thank you for listening. Thank you for being here. Never a dull moment on The Guy Benson Show. Middle hour, next. From the most powerful city in the world, unconventional talk from a fresh, unconventional conservative, Guy Benson Show. A brand new hour on the Guy Benson Show, the day after the election. Thank you so much for being here. GuyBensonShow.com is our website, the podcast free of charge every day. Shortly after the show's over, just after 6 p.m. Eastern. Follow us on Twitter. Follow us on Instagram at Guy Benson Show. I'll be on special report tonight on the panel with Brett Bayer and that whole crew. Right around 645 Eastern Time, Fox News Channel. So please tune in for that. Fox News Alert. The Dow sinking substantially today. Down 646 points at the closing bell. Ending at 32,513. The markets were... Pretty excited yesterday about the strong expectation of divided government and a Republican takeover. And maybe not so fast, and so markets tumbling today. That's at least part of it. With us now to talk about everything is Byron York, chief political correspondent at the Washington Examiner and a Fox News contributor. As we await President Biden at the White House, he's expected to come out to the podium any minute. When he does, we will get to that and dip into it live. But, Byron, first and foremost, good to have you here. Thank you, Guy. Good to be here. All right. Maybe just some of your big picture thoughts on what happened last night. Well, the big, biggest of the big picture thoughts um, is that uh, the one thing that most people predicted, which was a Republican takeover of the House, it appears that Republicans are going to take over the House. Uh, and it not not with uh, anywhere near as big a margin as some people had predicted, but it appears they're going to take over the House. Uh, Fox News 
has them at 206 seats right now, 12 seats away from a majority and Democrats at 177 seats. So it looks like that's going to happen. And the thing to remember as the president comes out to speak is that uh, what that means, the Republican takeover of the House, means that if Joe Biden does have a legislative agenda for the second half of his term, it's dead. It's not going to happen. So that is divided government. Um, and that, uh, for Republicans, is a really good thing. And I'll, I'll tell you, Republicans will be uh, campaigning and fundraising uh, on the basis of we stopped Joe Biden and the Democrats from doing all sorts of bad things. So anyway, that's, uh, you know, I think that's the biggest single thing. Now, uh, there's a lot more attention, I think, uh, on the Senate right now, uh, which uh, I wrote about this. Republicans had become more and more optimistic in the last month, a uh, few weeks, certainly the last days. I'm sure you saw this, too. They became, you know, first of all, they thought they could hold on to the seats that they had, Wisconsin, Ohio, North Carolina, and uh, Pennsylvania. And then when they became even more confident about doing that, they thought maybe they could even expand the map and, and win in New Hampshire or win in Washington State. Um, and they just became really, really uh, optimistic and bullish about their chances of taking over the Senate, 51, 52, 53, 54 seats. Um, and they, it had become uh, out of touch with reality. Uh, a lot of the polls still showed things to be very, very close, essentially a toss-up, um, and things didn't go their way. And now we're in a situation where we still haven't had calls in uh, Arizona and Nevada. Georgia's going to go to a runoff. And the thing is, it looks like Blake Masters is going to lose in Arizona, and it looks like Adam Laxalt is going to win, the Republican, in Nevada. But if he doesn't, if Democrats somehow keep Nevada, then Georgia doesn't matter at all. They'll, Democrats will already keep control of the Senate. So the Senate is a, obviously a much worse picture for Republicans, but I still think the big news out of the night is Republicans take over House. And it's still possible, actually, that Republicans could win the Senate, right? I mean, they could win two of those three, the, the last outstanding ones, Arizona, Nevada, Georgia. You win two of those three, you've got the Senate, and there's a real, at least plausible path to that. It would be very weird. This is the thing about this election, Byron. It is both simultaneously a huge underperformance and I think a huge disappointment, a shocking one for Republicans overall, given what has happened. And yet the possibility is still very viable that they win control of both houses. It just doesn't really feel that way necessarily. Yeah, that's true. And the way they do it is if they lose Arizona, if they win in um, uh, Nevada, then Nevada. the whole Georgia is the whole thing. And if they win in Georgia, if Herschel Walker beats uh, Raphael Warnock. And remember, there was a, um, uh, a libertarian candidate in that race who got 2.1 percent, uh, kind of a decisive uh, margin there. Uh, and he's not going to be in the race in the runoff. So there's, if, if you're of the belief that a lot of those votes would go to a Republican, um, then there's a real chance for Herschel Walker to win, and you're exactly right. Although the turnout's going to look totally different, Senate. right? The turnout would look totally – like it's – I think it's a, a total black box what could happen on December 6th in Georgia, but it could have everything on the line. Also, I think you're right that Laxalt has a good chance of winning in Nevada, and Blake Masters will likely lose in Arizona. I also don't think it's over in Arizona – 
based on what's still outstanding, hundreds of thousands of votes. Uh, I've seen some analysts suggesting that Kerry Lake has a very good chance of, of winning. Uh, and depending on this sort of, you know, blue mirage, red wave uh, phenomenon, maybe it could be enough for Masters. But he's definitely you'd rather be Kelly than Masters right now, I would say. But that's the Senate math. The House math isn't over yet. It's not cooked. I did see NBC not projecting as in they believe that the the House has now been won by the Republicans. But based on the numbers in these races out there, the current projection sort of guesstimate from NBC, and I think this is a Kornacki project, is that the Republicans could end up with 222 seats to 213 uh, for the Democrats or thereabouts, and which would – If true, and I'm not saying that that is exactly what's going to happen, I think there's still a lot of uncertainty there, but let's say it's approximately correct that the Republicans end up with 222 to 213. That would be almost just a little flip of the current status quo, right? Just a blip where the Republicans did a lot of their gains in 2020, then a few more gains, fewer than expected last night, and then they are saddled with or have the opportunity to wield a very difficult, very, very thin majority in the House. When I think, you know, McCarthy and company were they were measuring the drapes. They had a big speech planned, a big triumphal, you know, here we go, Republican agenda. Uh, it, it might look pretty different. Byron. Yeah. You know, that that 222 to 213, that's almost precisely the mirror image of what Democrats are working with, which all of us have remarked many times is a razor thin uh, majority and very difficult. Um, it requires, uh, let's just say this, I think Nancy Pelosi is probably a better authoritarian than Kevin McCarthy, uh, and that's what it requires if you've only got 222 uh, members and it takes 218 to to win. So anything that's party line, um, you've got to have incredible discipline. And there's already hey, a Byron. lot of talk in it. Huh? Byron, just to jump in, sorry to interrupt you. We just got uh, the less than two-minute warning for President Biden. So just quickly before he comes out, and we're going to listen to him together, uh, what do you expect from the president here in about a minute? Uh, I expect for him to talk about how Democrats' issues prevailed, that people were concerned about the state of democracy, that they were concerned about a woman's right to choose. They were concerned about the the Democratic issue set that uh, a lot of um, pundits uh, downplayed because they said inflation was the biggest thing. So I think he's going to point to that, point to the Democrats' better-than-expected performance as kind of a vote of confidence in, um, in Democrats and in 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 himself. So uh, I think that's the way he's going to go with this. Do you buy, Byron, this argument that I've now seen floating around there that because of what happened last night, Byron is now more that rather Biden is more likely to seek reelection in 2024 if he had, you know, lost a big midterm, there'd be people eager to push him out and put him out to pasture. But now he might be feeling himself. He might be really looking hard at a second term. I think it does strengthen him a little bit because if there had been a red wave, I mean, Biden would be a guy who's uh, too old to be president and he just lost, you know, huge amounts on uh, his party, lost huge amounts on Capitol Hill. So I think he's in better shape than that. And I think he yeah. wants to run. So, uh, yeah, I think he would take a little boost in even if it's losing by less than it. Well, he might be asked about that in the Q&A coming up after these remarks. Fox News alert. 
President Biden at the White House with some remarks on the midterm elections, and apparently he's going to take some questions from reporters as well. Let's listen. Turnout and the heart and soul of our democracy, the voters, the poll workers, the election officials, uh, they uh, did their job uh, and they fulfilled their duty. And apparently without much uh, interference at all, without any interference, it looks like. And that's a testament, I think, to the American people. While we don't know all the results yet, at least I don't know them all yet, uh, here's what we do know. While the press and the pundits are predicting a giant red wave, uh, it didn't happen. And I know you were somewhat miffed by my, uh, my uh, obsessive optimism, but uh, I felt good during the whole process. I thought we were going to do fine. While any seat lost is painful, some good Democrats didn't win the last night. Democrats had a strong night. And we lost fewer seats in the House of Representatives than any Democratic president's first midterm election in the last 40 years. And we had the best midterm for governors since 1986. And another thing that we know is that voters uh, spoke clearly about their concerns, about raising costs, the rising costs that they're in, and the need to get inflation down. There's still a lot of people hurting. They're very concerned. And it's about crime and public safety. And they sent a clear and unmistakable message that they want to uh, preserve our democracy and protect the right to choose uh, in this country. And I especially want to thank the young people of this nation who I'm told, I haven't seen the numbers, uh, voted historic numbers again, and uh, just as they did two years ago. And <clears throat> they voted to continue addressing the climate crisis, gun violence, their personal rights and freedoms, and the student debt relief. Last night, I was pleased to call Maxwell Frost, a 25-year-old who got elected, I guess the youngest man ever elected to the United States Congress. And uh, <clears throat> I told him, uh, uh, that uh, he, I, I told him that I was the first elected, the second youngest person ever elected to the United States Senate at 29, that I have no doubt he's off to an incredible start and what I'm sure will be a long, distinguished career. And when he's president and they say Joe Biden's out in the outer office, I don't want him to say Joe who. Um, but the voters were also clear that they are still frustrated. I get it. I understand it's been a really tough few years in this country for so many people. When I came to office, we inherited a nation with a pandemic uh, raging and an economy that was reeling. And we acted quickly and boldly to vaccinate the country and to create a stable and sustained growth in our economy. Long-term investment to rebuild America itself, our roads, our bridges, our ports, our airports, clean water systems, high-speed internet. And we're just getting started. The interesting thing is that this is all going to really come into clear view for people in the, month, in the months of January, February, March of next year. It's just getting underway. So I'm optimistic about how the public is going to even be more embraceable of what we've done. <clears throat> Historic investments that are leading companies to invest literally hundreds of billions of dollars combined to build semiconductor factories. Another advance. All right, you're listening live to the president of the United States, Joe Biden, at the White House reacting to... The elections last night, he said he wasn't that surprised. He felt good throughout the process, so good that he wasn't planning to speak today. But never mind. Now he is. Uh, He's going to take questions, apparently. So we have to take a break. We will do that briefly. When we come back, we will get to some of that Q&A with the president from the reporters gathered there on The Guy Benson Show. Stay with us. Fresh conservative talk. Guy Benson Show. I'm Guy Benson. We're back. 
Fox News alert. President Biden live at the White House right now giving comments about last night's elections. He said while we were in the break that he plans to meet with congressional leaders regardless of the outcomes. He's prepared to work with Republicans on issues, and he expects that the American people want Republicans to also work with him. He went down a litany of issues. You might have heard before the break, inflation and crime. He started with those, which is interesting, then got to democracy, abortion, climate change, and others. He also said that he's just getting started on his agenda, but you know we'll see what that means, especially if he's got a Republican Congress, one or both houses that he's contending with. He is still going. He hasn't started with the questions yet, so we will go back in to what we believe is the tail end of his prepared remarks before Q&A with reporters. And that future is bright as can be. We were the only nation in the world to come out of every crisis stronger than we went into the crisis. And that's a fact. I mean, I mean, literally mean that. We've come out stronger than we've gone in. And I've never been more optimistic about America's future than I am today. You know, I, particularly because of all those young people I talked about, 18 to 30. They're showing up. They're the best educated generation in American history. They're the least prejudiced generation in American history, the most engaged generation in American history, and the most involved. Look, after a long campaign season, I still believe it always have. This is a great nation, and we're a great people. And it's never been a good bet to bet against America. Never been a good bet to bet against America. There's nothing, nothing beyond our capacity if we work together. We just need to remember who the hell we are. We're the United States of America. The United States of America, there's nothing beyond our capacity. And I'm pretty well convinced that we're going to be able to get a lot done. Now, I've been given a list of 10 people that I'm supposed to call on. And you're all supposed to ask me one question, but I'm sure you'll ask me more. And uh, so let me start off with a list I've been given. Um, uh, Zeke Miller, Associated Press. As you mentioned, uh, as you mentioned, uh, how come we never hold you guys the same standard you hold us to? But anyway, go ahead. I'm 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 teasing. I'm teasing. I'm teasing. You mentioned that uh, Americans are frustrated, and in fact, 75% of voters say the country is heading into the wrong direction, despite the results of last night. What in the next two years do you intend to do differently uh, to change people's uh, opinion of the direction of the country, particularly as you contemplate a run for president in 2024? Nothing because they're just finding out what we're doing. The more they know about what we're doing, the more support there is. Do you know anybody who wants us to get rid of the change we made on prescription drug prices and raise prices again? Do you know anybody who wants us to walk away from building those roads and bridges and, and the Internet and so on? I don't, I, I don't know. I think that the problem is the major piece of legislation we passed, and some of it bipartisan, takes time to be recognized. For example, you got, you got over a trillion dollars worth of infrastructure money, but not that many spades have been put in the ground. It's taking time. For example, I was on the phone congratulating a Californian recently, and then someone in, uh, uh, up in Scranton, Pennsylvania, the congressman got elected. He said, can you help us make sure we're able to have high-speed rail, rail service from Scranton to New York? New York City. I said, yeah, we can. We can. First of all, it'll make it a lot easier, take a lot of vehicles off the road, 
And we have more money in the, in the pot now. President All Biden taking over. questions from reporters in the East Room of the White House. He was just asked from the Associated Press, what are you going to do differently the next two years? And the answer was nothing. Nothing different. More of the same. And I guess after last night, to some extent, the American people voted for that, if you can believe it. Not entirely. He's unpopular, so is his agenda. But Republicans, also unpopular. Here we are, all together, on The Guy Benson Show. More coming up. Talking about the issues you care about. Guy Benson. Fox News alert on The Guy Benson Show. President Biden with the post-election press conference that is customary. He's underway right now. During the commercial break, he reiterated he's not going to change directions in his second half of this first term. He talked again about restoring the soul of America and decency. Uh, Interesting from the guy who talked about worse than Jim Crow and compared opponents to racists. I will point out down in Georgia, by the way, record turnout in the midterm elections. In the Jim Crow 2.0, worse than Jim Crow, Jim Eagle voter suppression, record turnout in Georgia. Never heard an apology from him on that, I would just note. He also was asked a question about Russia. He was asked about whether or not he believes Republicans are on track to win the House, and he sort of dodged on that. He is still taking questions, and we will go back to that live. Going to the G20 in a couple days, you'll come face to face with many of those leaders the same moment that your predecessor is considering launching his re-election effort. How should those world leaders, both good guys and bad guys, view this moment both for America and for your presidency? Well, first of all, these world leaders know we're doing better than anybody else in the world as a practical matter. Notwithstanding the difficulties we have, our economy is growing. You saw the last report. We're still growing at 2.6 percent. We're creating jobs. We're still in a solid position. And there's not many other countries in the world are in that position. And I promise you, from the telephone calls I still have and from the meetings I have with other heads of state, they're looking to the United States and saying, how are you doing? What are you doing? What can we do together? How do we? So I think that the vast majority of my colleagues, at least those colleagues who are NATO members, European Union, Japan, South Korea, et cetera, I think they're looking to cooperate and wanting to know how, how we can help one another. Um, and what was the other question? Oh, I'm sorry. No, no, no. So I think the one way I would follow up on that is you, you noted that you felt like there was a shift in terms of uh, people being willing to show more decency in this moment. You've often talked about breaking the fever or kind of a transition from this moment that we've faced over the last several years. Do you feel like the election is what represents that? Do you feel like the fever is broken, I guess? Well, I, I'm not, I, I don't think we're going to break the fever for the super mega mega Republicans. I mean, but I think they're a minority of the Republican Party. I think the vast majority of the members of the Republican Party, we disagree strongly on issues, but they're decent, honorable people we have differences of agreement on, on issues. But they, uh, you know, I, I, I work with a lot of these folks in the Senate and the House for a long time, and, uh, you know, they, they're, they're honest and they're, and they're straightforward. They're different than mine, but, they're, you know, they're, they're, they're decent folks. And so I think that the rest of the world, and a lot of you have covered other parts of the world, and you know, the rest of the world looking at the United States, I guess the best way to say this is to, is to repeat what you've, some of you heard me say before. The first um, 
G7 meeting for the public. That's the, the seven largest democracies. When I went to, uh, right after we got elected in February, after I got sworn in in January. And I sat down at a table, a round table, with the six other world leaders from the European Union and, United, and, uh, and Canada, et cetera, and said, uh, America's back. And one of them turned to me and said, for how long? For how long? It was a deadly earnest question. For how long? And I looked So we're going to continue to monitor President Biden at the White House. He's uh, giving uh, somewhat meandering answers to some of these questions. If he makes some major news, uh, we will bring that to you. Still to come in the next hour, Governor Chris Christie, former governor of New Jersey. He'll be here with reaction. Molly Hemingway as well. But kind enough to stay with us throughout this is Byron York. We began the hour with him, and now we come back to Byron just to uh, analyze what we just heard there, Byron, uh, from the president. Any surprises? Anything stand out to you so far? And he's still talking. Um, you know, I actually, I thought he adopted a very good tone in his opening remarks uh, in which he conceded, of course, that it was, you know, he was probably going to lose the House. Um, he said things to please his base like we will never compromise on uh, a woman's right to choose. But then he said there are lots of things that I hope we can work with Republicans in Congress on. I hope we can, you know, cooperate. Um, people are tired of, of uh, just a sort of high-level political con- conflict that goes on 24-7, never-ending. Um, so I actually thought those kind of things, if you know, if you had one of these little dial focus groups with people there, the dials would have been going way up, and they're approving him saying stuff like that. And then – uh, the reporter gets up and says, "Well, you know, what are you going to do different now?" And he said, "Nothing." <laughs> which yeah. Is, you know, which was like, I, I didn't mean anything that I just said. I'm, you know, so um, now he's just kind of in kind of Biden babbling mode. He's just going on. Yeah, and and the thing is about the lack of change. If you look at the Fox News exit polling that we call voter analysis, I mean, it's this interesting. Tension, Byron, because on one hand, President Biden is unpopular among the electorate that showed up last night in the days and weeks prior in the early voting. 57 percent disapproval rating is what I saw. 75 percent wrong track issue. A majority, a clear majority said that Biden's policies have made inflation worse. It's a very dissatisfied group, also dissatisfied with him and the Democrats' policies. That is a repudiation of what they've been doing. But at the same time, they also looked at the uh, the alternative in many cases. And a lot of undecided, you know, independent voters said, well, you know, maybe not so interested in that either, which is why it appears that we are going to be once again in this very divided country in something of a stalemate for the next two years. And I just don't really know if today is really a day for uh chest thumping. And I'm not saying Biden did all of that, but, you know, neither party, I think, should be feeling terribly great about themselves today, even though Democrats have avoided something that they were fearing and Republicans have have, you know, perhaps won back at least one chamber. It's not like a great look for anyone involved here, at least as I see it. No. And this kind of, uh, you know, I'm not as dead as people predicted. Um, (laughs) It's not something that really, I think, scores a lot of points. Uh, with anybody. And um, in fact, in fact, um, 
midterm elections are often a referendum on the performance in office of the president. And this president is going to lose seats because unpopular presidents always lose seats. And that's going to happen again. We can we can see that in the numbers uh, right now. So I don't think he's making any progress on this. Uh, he clearly has no contact with Republican leadership. So a reporter asked him, well, what do you think about uh, Kevin McCarthy? And he said, well, I think he's the House Republican leader. <laughs> and that was it. Uh, and that may be all he actually knows. This is this is not uh, the old Senate that Joe Biden was a, a creature in. So um, I agree with you. It's not a time for anybody to be uh, to be chest dumping right now. What comes next for this administration? He was talking about the agenda. You know, full speed ahead. We're just getting started. But you know, let's be honest. If Republicans have any of those levers of power. The agenda is all but over. There might be little things here or there, must-pass legislation, other things that folks might be able to hammer out and agree on. But any type of sweeping Democratic agenda would be over the second Republicans won either of the houses of Congress. And then in terms of the houses of Congress themselves, and we don't want to get too far ahead of this, Byron, because we have not seen a call for the House going to the Republicans yet. Uh, The Senate is very much up for grabs still in those three races, Arizona, Nevada, Georgia. But I would imagine... The next Congress, even though there were not that many changing of seats in terms of, you know, party affiliation, it's going to be a different overall composition. And I think the leadership, especially on the Democratic side, they've got a moment where I think many folks within their party have been clamoring for changes. Maybe that will be less loud given what happened last night, but still there. What do you think happens in terms of this potential changing of the guard among Democratic leadership, be it Biden or, you know, the top couple of leaders in the House of Representatives? Well, I, I think the more immediate uh, thing, of course, is going to happen in the House of Representatives, where you have, I believe, well, we know all three Democratic leaders um, are over 80 years old. Speaker of the House Nancy Pelosi is 82. Uh, the number two, Senator Hoyer, is 83. And I believe the number three, James Clyburn, is also 83 years old. This is extraordinary. Uh, and we had some stories uh, about who might uh, who might succeed Pelosi uh, in this case as the leader of the party, the minority leader, not the Speaker of the House. Um, we saw a story the other day that um, Hakeem Jeffries uh, from New Jersey really wants this job. New York, I think, right? Uh, is it New York? Is it New York? could be New York, um, who really wants this job and is worried about Adam Schiff making kind of an in, inside play to get it, uh, goes to James Clyburn and asks for his blessing in, uh, in, in seeking this job and gets it, uh, which shows you that there's just a lot of maneuvering going on. And I, you do think that if, um, um, if uh, Democrats do lose control of the House, as it appears they will, uh, it will be the end of Nancy Pelosi, who it seems hard to believe that at age 82 she would decide to become, um, you know, a backbencher, uh, or let's just say try to keep the job as minority leader. It's just hard hard to imagine, but who knows? Meanwhile, Byron, before we let you go, just so you do know, Biden was asked the question about 2024. He repeated his typical line, which is he intends to run again. But that is a family decision. He said they will discuss it. And then he suspects early next year is when they would make the judgment. He's going to be saying that he intends to run all the way up into the moment that he does or does not 
because he doesn't want to lame duck himself. And as you were talking about earlier, perhaps he's been a little bit strengthened, more wind behind his sails here. Uh, now that they didn't get drubbed in the midterm elections, perhaps some of the knives that were coming out for him are being put back in their sheaths, maybe on the Democratic side, at least for a while. We'll be watching all of it. Byron York at the Washington Examiner, one of our colleagues here is a Fox News contributor. Byron, appreciate you rolling with the punches here. Thank you, Guy. Enjoyed it. We'll be right back after this on The Guy Benson Show. The Guy Benson Show. More next. Back here on The Guy Benson Show. Chris Christie, Molly Hemingway up in the next hour. President's still taking questions, still talking. We'll keep an eye on it. Just didn't want to subject you to that for segment after segment after segment. You got the gist. If he says anything in response that's, you know, really interesting or of note, we can always bring that to you. I do want to talk about New York. Last hour, we talked about Florida and what a shining beacon of success that was for Republicans. And there's some shout outs required elsewhere. People also performed well. Big Republican year in Iowa, for example. But just the scope of what they did in Florida was breathtaking. If you missed the monologue, you can go back and listen to it on the free podcast, GuyBensonShow.com. In New York, I want to give a tribute to Lee Zeldin. You don't usually go out of your way to praise someone who's lost the election. He did lose to Kathy Hochul. He did concede the race. Last I checked with most of the vote in, almost all the vote in, Zeldin lost to Kathy Hochul by under six percentage points. That is the closest statewide race in New York in decades, like 20 years. And in some ways, Lee Zeldin, at least on paper, was not a great fit statewide in New York. He's someone in the House of Representatives who voted, I think, to object to a couple of the certifications of the Biden electoral victory, which Hochul talked about constantly. Very blue state. Obviously, people aren't going to be happy with that. He's pro-life, which is a tough sell statewide in a place as liberal as New York. But he, especially toward the back end of the campaign, focused in on crime and the economy just almost obsessively, hitting it every day because those are real concerns that people have. Hochul was an awful candidate. She had to be dragged across the finish line by every famous Democrat in the world, basically, in New York. She would poo-poo and dismiss this stuff, including crime. Her record is bad. So that helped Zeldin, of course. But her weakness alone wouldn't be enough to make a race competitive in a state like New York. Zeldin had to be energetic and focused and disciplined, and he was. And one point that I made, and if you go back and listen, you can bring me the receipts. It's true here on the show. Over and over again, I expressed, I think, a healthy skepticism that Zeldin could actually win. I said all she needed was mediocre turnout, and she would win, and that's what she got. But I also said there were down-ballot implications. I used that phrase over and over again in New York because there was an array of competitive House seats in particular— like U.S. House representative seats in the state of New York, the Democrats tried to do an insane, totally illegal gerrymander earlier this cycle. You might remember this. It was so flagrantly illegal in violation of the constitutional amendment that they themselves had passed on this stuff, 
which they wanted to ignore for their own power interests, the Supreme Court, even an all-Democrat Supreme Court, overturned and threw out the map that the Democrats had put together. And instead, we got a much fairer, much more reasonable map. So there were some competitive races across New York. And guess what? As of this afternoon, Republicans have flipped four House seats in New York, the most impressive, largest performance on that front of any state in the country so far, except for Florida. They're tied with Florida, four and four. Two of them are on Long Island. I mentioned the last hour, Biden plus 15 district just flipped. In New York, three, also on Long Island, shout out to George Santos, a guy that I've met a few times. George is Hispanic. He's Jewish. He's the son of immigrants. He's also openly gay. He's the Republican. George has won out on Long Island. He becomes the first ever. He's a young guy, too. I think he's in his 30s. He becomes the first ever openly gay Republican to serve in Congress. So that's kind of cool. He came very close to winning it last time in 2020. This time he got over the top. Kudos to him. And a little bit of history there that I wanted to point out here on this show for a number of reasons. So both of those Long Island seats flipped. Then in central New York, two more of them have flipped. I think it was uh, New York 17 and 19, if memory serves, including Sean Patrick Maloney's seat. And the other seat was the one that the Democrats won in that special election over the summer that they were all jazzed about, all excited. Oh, look, Roe versus Wade. They, they won a special election. The Republicans fell short. Well, the Republicans just won that seat. There's a few races outstanding, but it looks like Republicans will probably hold the other seats at play. So in New York, four House seats are net likely to fall into the Republican category of gains. And as I said before, that would mean if you got eight gains in Florida plus New York combined, that is the bulk of it. And a lot of credit goes to Ron DeSantis down there. And yes, Lee Zeldin in New York. By focusing on the issues that he did, by hammering Kathy Hochul every day, by energizing Republicans in a state where they often feel beaten down, by giving them some real hope, people turned out and the results are pretty impressive. I don't think a lot of people had New York potentially making the Republican House majority on the bingo card, but in a weird year, that might have just happened. We'll see. Another hour of the Guy Benson Show, final hour coming up. Stay tuned. It's 5 o'clock in the most powerful city in the world, Washington, D.C. It's time for the Guy Benson Show Happy Hour, sponsored by the Finnish Long Drink. Finland's most popular alcoholic beverage has come to America. Visit thelongdrink.com. And now, here's your host, Guy Benson. It's the happy hour on The Guy Benson Show. Thank you very much for listening. 3 to 6 p.m. Eastern every weekday. That's the show. The happy hour is 5 to 6 p.m. Eastern time. Brought to you by the Finnish Long Drink, which is great. We just got our new shipment, actually, at the house today. Just in time, actually, to cope with the election. TheLongDrink.com is their website. You can find out where they're sold near you. You can order online. TheLongDrink.com. Always drink responsibly. 21 plus only website here guybensonshow.com podcast always free on demand when the show is over 
also at foxnewspodcast.com or wherever you get your podcasts. You can follow us on social media at Guy Benson Show. That's both Twitter and Instagram. And please tune in tonight for a special report. I'm on the panel right around 645 Eastern Time on Fox News Channel. That's with Brett Bayer and the crew. So hope to see you there. As we begin our final and happy hour here on the show, we welcome back Governor Chris Christie, the 55th governor of the state of New Jersey. He served before the current governor of New Jersey. His book is Republican Rescue, which might be newly relevant here. And, Governor, it's good to have you back. Good to be back and good to lead off the happy hour, guys. Yes, sir. All right. So I just want to get your big picture thoughts on what happened last night, the good, the bad, the ugly. Take as long as you'd like. Sure. Uh, Well, first, let's say the good. I think we're on our way to um, a majority in the House of Representatives. Um, And to be able to have that is to be able to stop the most radical parts of the Biden agenda um, in their tracks. That's very important for the country. Um, And and also the good is that we're going to be once again, guy, back in Georgia, um, I suspect, fighting for a a majority in the United States Senate. And to be able to do that um, gives us an opportunity uh, to stop them uh, and Joe Biden's agenda in the Senate as well. And combining the two give us an opportunity to put some really good things um, on the agenda um, and on Joe Biden's desk, potentially, um, to make him uh, have to deal with some of those things. That's good. The bad of the night is the missed opportunities, Guy. And, and look, the fact is this. Um, you know, good, good candidates win races uh, and bad candidates don't. Uh, candidate quality is always going to be a part, a large, large part. And it's underestimated in the punditry. You know, they talk about atmosphere and uh, tactics and uh, ads and all the rest of that. But, you know, you can't substitute um, having a candidate who knows how to handle him or herself um, and, and be able to present themselves and sell themselves and their ideas to the public. And, and, and the simple fact is that in many of these races, um, we had candidates who were not the very best that we could have um, for one reason and one reason only, because Donald Trump, decided that the criteria for picking a, a candidate who he would push for and give his endorsement to um, in close primaries was that they believe uh, and were they willing to say uh, that the election was uh, 2020 was stolen. If they were, they got an endorsement. If they weren't, they did not. And in fact, what they got in return um, was to be vilified um, by him. And, you know, what we're, what we're doing now uh, and what Donald Trump is doing, to be clear, is making up an unacceptable general election party in close states, in blue states and purple states. And here's my best example, Guy. In 2016, when he was an unknown quantity, he won Wisconsin, he won Michigan, and he won Pennsylvania. And that won him the presidency. Since that time, with the exception of Ron Johnson, we can't win anything in Wisconsin or Michigan or Pennsylvania. And if that continues, we will not win the presidency in 2024. And that, uh, we can, as we see with Joe Biden every day, is something that's completely unacceptable for the country. And we as a party need to come to a decision over the course of the next two years. Are we the party of me or are we the party of us? If we're the party of me, meaning the party of Donald Trump, and everything is about Kim, 
and his personal needs and desires, well, then we're not going to be able to win general elections in tough states, which means we won't win the presidency back. If we're the party of us, where we're putting the people of the country, their needs, their hopes, their dreams, their desires first, ahead of our own personal interests, well, then we have a chance, I think a very good chance, to win the presidency back and be able to really change the country. I would just note, Governor Christie, for the audience, that President Biden just finished up his Q&A and his press conference at the White House. We covered some of it. We carried some of it here. Uh, and we got most of, I think, the most newsworthy stuff in. And, yeah, I mean, look, the Trump factor is very much under discussion in earnest among a lot of conservatives. I'm seeing it. I'm getting messages constantly about it from people. Uh, I got one just today from someone saying, hey, you know, we mix it up about Trump in the past and we disagree, but now I'm realizing you were right about him. Uh, I'm Look, there's going to be plenty of time for all of that, the litigating of it, the recriminations. I will just say today, you know, Trump's got this uh, social media platform, Truth Social. He reacted to the midterms. Last night, I think his, his first big reaction was celebrating the loss of Joe O'Day, the Republican, in Colorado. Republicans got hammered in Colorado. It looks like Lauren Boebert's going to lose her seat out there. Uh, just a horrible night for Republicans in Colorado. President Trump used his platform to celebrate one of those losses because uh, O'Day was uh, not personally loyal enough to Trump and kissing the ring and all of that. Then today he put out a statement saying this is a big win. The election last night was a big win because his win-loss record of endorsements or whatever uh, you know, wasn't too bad. So he, he looks at last night as a big win. I don't see any Republicans trying to spin it that way other than him. And then he's also you know, taking more shots at, at Governor Ron DeSantis down in Florida. And whatever you think of DeSantis, he just won that state by 20 points. Uh, it's just an interesting choice you know, to, to be doing what he's doing, but that's what the former president is up to. Well, look, Guy, that's because everything is about him. It's not about our party, and it's not about our country. It's about him. There's no other reason to take a shot at Ron DeSantis today. Look, Ron DeSantis did, has done a great job as the governor of Florida, and, and he did a great job in this election unquestionably. When you win 59 to 40, <laughs> it's pretty definitive. Now, look, he ran against Charlie Crist. Um, I think we all would hope for an opponent like Charlie Chris. But nonetheless, you still have to execute and get it done, and he did. Um, and so did Marco Rubio, by the way, um, and got the job done uh, against the better candidate than Charlie Chris in Val Demings. And, and so we see real change in Florida. Florida's becoming really a red state. Well, why are you taking shots at Ron DeSantis and giving him a nickname and all the rest of that? It's because this is about executing vendettas. You're right about Joe O'Day. I went out and campaigned for Joe O'Day. He would have been an outstanding United States senator and 100 times better than Michael Bennett. Yet Donald Trump went after him during the general election. Um, remember that Donald Trump went to Georgia and said that Stacey Abrams may have been a better governor than Brian Kemp. Um, and I campaigned for Brian Kemp for the last year, both against the Trump-inspired challenge against David Perdue and against Stacey Abrams. And he won a big win last night, you know, a six, seven-point win against Stacey Abrams because he did a great job as governor, and he was also a smart, sophisticated, good communicator as a candidate. Yet we see no congratulations for Brian Kemp today, even though if we want to win the Senate back, if we have a chance to win it back in this recall, in the, uh, in the runoff election, um, Brian Kemp's going to need to be engaged in helping Herschel Walker. Um, to be able to get every voter out there we can 
get no encouragement to do that, just continued criticism. And look, it's not all about him. Um, and our, the candidates have responsibilities as well, real responsibilities to, to do a better job. But the selection of our candidates has gone off track in many places, and especially in states like our home state, blue states and purple states, where we're going to have to win some of those guys if we want to continue to be a national party that can win presidential elections. And, you know, I read something on, on ABC last night that the president gave an interview where he said, if, if people win, I deserve all the credit. And when people lose, I don't merit any of the blame uh, of the people he supported. I mean, I think that told, should tell everybody everything they need to know about what his priorities are. And that's not leadership. Governor Christie, you mentioned Governor DeSantis. You mentioned Governor Kemp. One of the bright spots for me were Republican governors all across the country. Not a single incumbent governor has lost anywhere in the country, actually, from either party. We might see a loss in Nevada. Uh, That one is still coming down the pike here with some of the numbers. But in terms of people, I call it hitting their mark or exceeding it, and in some cases far exceeding it. I mean, you look at what Governor Sununu did in New Hampshire, Governor DeWine. I mean, Governor DeWine, not to take anything away from J.D. Vance, who won the Senate race, and that was a must-win, and he got it done, but DeWine, the governor there, who's a conservative, I mean, he outpaced the uh, the Senate margin for Vance by like 20 points. I mean, it was a huge blowout. Kim Reynolds in Iowa, Kemp, of course, in Georgia, Governor Abbott, I saw he's, I think, 10 or 11 or even 12 points. Uh, he was up by a lot of these Republican governors, including very conservative governors, went out there and, and won. And other people and, and other candidates really struggled to do so in this sort of strange, hazy environment, what do you make of that? They did their jobs, first and foremost, Guy, during some very tough times. Look, you look at what Brian Kemp, who really was the leader on, on COVID and COVID response, and took a lot of heat from people um, when he reopened uh, Georgia uh, gradually, but smartly, uh, reopened Georgia, put the priorities of Georgia kids first at the first school district in the country that went back to school in person because he understood how important that was. Governors, you know, look, I, I hope that, that Governor Abbott has finally retired federal work. I mean, even liberals have to retire to send federal work money for nothing, um, you know, for continuing to lose. I think he and Stacey Abrams should get their own, you know, uh, TV talk show on, on MSNBC, and, and they love being famous. They should just go to be famous and stop trying to pretend that they actually have something to add to the public dialogue as, a, as an elected official. Um, the, the Republican governors have performed. Chris Sununu, you mentioned, who's done an outstanding job up in, up in New Hampshire. But when everything else was a bloodbath in New Hampshire, um, Don Baldick, who was not a good candidate and should not have been the nominee, um, oh, was the nominee because he was Donald Trump's handpicked candidate. Um, it got crushed by Maggie Hassan, who is an awful candidate herself. Um, and uh, Caroline Levitt, the House uh, candidate up there, um, who was, again, a Trump candidate in, in District 1 in New Hampshire, um, got herself beaten badly by Chris Pappas, who was a 99 percenter with Nancy Pelosi. Um, but the line is the big place I want to mass mention. Even J.D. Vance last night said he thanked Governor DeWine um, for his win 
Uh, because remember the statistic over the last 20 years, Guy, when the governor and a senator are, or a Senate candidate are both on the same ballot in the same year, if the governor wins, 85% of the time the Senate candidate in the same state of his party wins. And so these governors did a great service, not only uh, with the exception of, and they'll say how bad Baldwin was, but even a big win by Sununu couldn't drag him over the finish line. And Brian Kemp may wind up, almost became the first person in history who ever dragged Herschel Walker over the goal line. So, yeah. you know, this, this is, these governors did their job, and there's, there's, that's the kind of leadership we need in this country for our party as well. Uh, and they proved it last night because they deliver for the people who elected them. Chris Christie, one more question. President Biden, minutes ago, asking or responding, rather, to questions asked by reporters. One of them was, uh, what would he change in his approach to the presidency over these next two years, especially if Republicans have some control? Cut 32. Here's the answer. You mentioned that uh, Americans are frustrated. In, in fact, 75 percent of voters say the country is heading into the wrong direction, despite the results of last night. What in the next two years do you intend to do differently uh, to change people's uh, opinion of the direction of the country, particularly as you contemplate a run for president in 2024? Nothing. And he elaborated that he meant it. He will not change his approach at all for these next two years. What do you think of that? Well, look, I say I say it's awful for the country when it presents our party with an opportunity. Joe Biden, um, he can't change at this point. Let's face it. Even if he wanted to, guy, he couldn't change. This is a guy who, over the last 50 years, has been conducting himself in exactly the same way for 50 years. He's not changing. We need a generational change in this country, and, and, and we need an approach to leadership in this country that is different than what we're getting from the baby boomer generation. Look, thank you very much for your service, baby boomers. It is time to move on. It is time to pass the torch the next generation or two beneath you to provide the kind of leadership that this country needs. And, and one thing I, I want to say to my fellow Republicans out there, it, it is disappointing that we had a swing and a miss, and we have to evaluate how we're going to do better or we're going to repeat these same mistakes. But if we walk out of here on December 5th with a Speaker McCarthy and a Majority Leader McConnell, if we can get together and pull that off over the next four weeks, that it will have been a good night for the Republicans. Not as good as it could have been, but it will still be a good night. But we cannot take this chance again in two years. We cannot go down a destructive road of vindictiveness and vendetta being our primary desire as policymakers. And I think you see a lot of the people who engage in that vindictiveness and vendetta approach to politics um, well, I was up on the short end of the stick last night. Yeah, kind and, of the normals. The normal Republicans are the ones who won, and in many cases won big last night. A conversation that will be continued, no doubt, in the days, weeks, years to come. Governor Chris Christie, former New Jersey governor, Republican, here on The Guy Benson Show. Governor, we're up on a break. Thanks for your time, as always. Thank you for having me, Guy. Have a good rest of the happy hour. You too. Quick break, right back. Fresh conservative talk, Guy Benson Show. Back on the Guy Benson Show. Just a quick note on Pennsylvania. So Doug, uh, what is his name? Doug Mastriano got crushed in the governor's race. He was at January 6th. 
Republicans decided to nominate him in Pennsylvania for governor, and the people of Pennsylvania overall said no. Lost by double digits, it was called very early. And he lost so badly that it certainly did no favors to Dr. Oz trying to win that Senate race. Now, look, Oz was not my first candidate in the race. I think he improved as a candidate. He focused on crime. That's all good. But the Democrats were like, he's a weirdo. He's not from Pennsylvania. He's from New Jersey. He's kind of strange. And he also had a brutal campaign in the primary. And he won with Trump's endorsement by like a point, less than a point, I believe. And he never really recovered on popularity. He didn't pull in enough Republicans to get it done. And when all is said and done, and I think the fact that the debate happened after hundreds of thousands of votes had been banked for John Fetterman. But ultimately, he lost to John Fetterman, that guy. I don't really know if I want to hear about candidate quality issues if someone like that can win. But I guess in a blue state, you got to play smart. And Oz didn't get it done. And now Senator Fetterman, my Lord. Molly Hemingway coming up next. Talking about the issues you care about. Guy Benson. We are back on the Guy Benson Show. Wednesday after the election. Thank you for listening. I'll be on special report tonight on TV, Fox News Channel, like quarter till seven or so Eastern time. Just a programming note there. With us now, Molly Hemingway, editor-in-chief at The Federalist and a Fox News contributor, best-selling author. Molly, good to have you back here. Great to be here with you. All right. uh, Just your thoughts on last night, your takeaways. Oh, I was hoping you wouldn't ask that because I am completely <laughs> disoriented. I mean, it's it's weird. I think what's going on is that people were assuming this was a typical campaign where if you have apocalyptically low approval ratings for the president, great dissatisfaction with the unified government, that it would have an effect on the election. And I think we have probably entered a new era of campaigns and elections where we have such expansive um, voting that goes on for weeks or sometimes even months before Election Day that it kind of gets rid of this thing that used to be very important, which is enthusiasm. That gap is just gone now or, or that like that issue is just gone for Democrat voters who tend to vote early by mail. And so I think you're just going to start seeing a bunch of elections go just like this unless something changes with you know, how we do campaigns and elections, which seems unlikely. Part of it also, though, was independents and undecideds didn't really break the Republicans' way in the numbers that I think many people, including myself, expected they would for all the reasons that you just mentioned, you know, the fundamentals. Typically, that's what happened. But a lot of those folks looked at the Republicans and said, oh, so we don't like what's happening in the country. We don't like the Democrats, disapprove of the president. We're unhappy in general, but we don't really want them either. And so you've got kind of I don't know, just a very unhappy, dissatisfied country in a lot of ways right now. And these these tug of wars politically that ended up in kind of it looks like a stalemate last night. Yeah, they voted to keep all the incumbents. I'm not sure if it is true that they're as dissatisfied as they tell pollsters they are, if we truly believe this is a good reflection of where people are. Um, I mean, they voted they incumbents did remarkably well 
the only incumbent who might be unseated would be um, Catherine Cortez Masso, who might yep. be unseated, or uh, Mark Kelly, who might be, or Warnock, who might be. But I guess Ed, when I put it that way, you might unseat three incumbents, and that is a big issue. And maybe but. Lisa Murkowski, too, in Alaska. But But the point is, of all the races that have been called in the entire country, not a single incumbent senator or governor has lost in either party anywhere so far. Yes. So I don't, I just, it's, I, I, I'm totally fine with people like blaming everybody else or, you know, blaming McConnell or Trump or McCarthy or whoever they want to blame. I'm totally fine with it. But it just still seems very weird. It does not match. It does not match the mood of the moment. It doesn't match what people are talking about. And I think people do have to think about whether we're engaged in just real tribalism now. And so it doesn't, you can literally run John Fetterman and have him win, you know, that maybe candidate quality isn't a big issue. It's just, it's just straight tribalism. Yeah. I mean, it's just, that's how it's been in Wisconsin for a couple of years, right? Just obviously there are persuadable voters because Ron Johnson won and the Republican uh, for governor did not, you know, there's a couple points Ron Johnson ran ahead. Um, I think if the Democrats had nominated someone less disastrous than Mandela Barnes, I think they could have won that seat, but they didn't. They cleared the field for Mandela Barnes and they lost and they deserved to lose bigger than they did. But they don't really lose big anyone in Wisconsin. It's, it's that close. Georgia kind of the same way. I have no confident prediction about what's going to happen in that Senate runoff, even though Brian Kemp, very impressive win, when it's just like, you know, two immovable objects colliding and just like who can physically get more of their human beings' bodies to a place over the course of a few weeks to push a button. Uh, you know, it is really, really close in the state of Georgia, and that one could go either way. Now, Molly, the, the one place that bucked the trend, not the trend of incumbents winning, uh, but at least at the top of the ticket, but in terms of, you know, the atmosphere and the results not really seeming to matter, was Florida. You know, in, and you could argue New York, where things were a lot closer than they should have been for Kathy Hochul. She lost by six. Republicans have gained four seats, it looks like, in the House there. They've also gained four seats in the state of Florida, in the House of Representatives. But I, what the Republican leadership has done in the state of Florida absolutely has moved the dial in that state to where I, one of the folks on the air last night on Fox said it looks more and resembles more like Arkansas now than what Florida was considered even four years ago, where they were extremely close statewide races. I mean, the Florida anomaly, the Florida example, in the face of some of these other underwhelming disappointments, it's almost like even more notable because of what happened elsewhere. Oh, it's huge. It's beautiful. And yeah, it's, it's, it's something that people should be emulating in other states. Now, I, I do worry there's a limit to how many voters you can you can import into your state who are fleeing from you know New York or the Midwest. But right. even the fact that Florida did such a good job of attracting freedom lovers by being so different in you know Ron DeSantis was so different in how he handled the COVID pandemic than most other governors, and it was a it was a real appeal. And he won a narrow election against a star at that time, a star up and coming Democrat, Andrew Gillum. And he won against a, you know, this time he went, he had a much easier race because he was running against um, Charlie Crist, but it was a 20 point win. It's massive. Yeah, and people that just are loving happen. him and they're excited and they're, you know, and he was bold. He was, he was two things that are great. He was bold and aggressive on his conservatism. 
And he was, he is a very effective governor who gets things done for everybody. And it's just, it's a model of governance. It's what I liked how Carrie Lake said yesterday. She, if she wins, she will emulate him. You know, that she, he, she set the standard that she wants to aspire to. Well, every Republican governor should be aspiring to that and trying to, you know, compete with Florida in this marketplace. But it's a real beautiful thing. And it, it is also one of those things that's very confounding, though. They had a great night. And so did like North Carolina and Missouri and Ohio and other states. But like they really had a great night. And so it makes what the overall disappointment with less of a red wave, you know, so frustrating for so many. Yeah, I mean, hardly a red wave at all, it would seem. And I, I guess it looks like the House is probably going to go red uh, by a couple of seats. And that's not even, you know, in the bank just yet. Uh, but that that's the way it looks to be trending. Uh, the Senate is it's just it is weird, Molly. There's so much weirdness about this election uh, because there's a at least decent chance that Republicans flip both chambers and yet it won't really feel like they had a good night. Uh, and that kind of is where we are right now. Yeah, you said something about how it's whichever party gets the bodies to the polling place. And I do think we have a new way of voting that Republicans need to they need to wake up and realize it's not the 1980s where you can run these campaigns that are all based on television advertising. Democrats have done a very good job of investing in getting ballots from Democrat registered voters or people who vote Democrat to the polling box. And they do it through a really well-funded long-term campaign. You know, it used to be on election day, you would take the bus around and get people, pick them up and take them to the poll. Well, now they can do that for like eight weeks before election day in some mm-hmm. states. Um, and Republicans should emulate this too. I mean, I, I actually do believe in in-person voting, but I'm I'm an outlier there. And so Republicans should out should should match that and start thinking about running campaigns with strong ground games instead of big advertising budgets that don't seem to be persuasive. Yeah, I mean, you got to play in that sandbox to some extent because you can't just get killed on the air and defined negatively to everyone and persuadable voters. You got to play there. But there's got to be more involved now. And that's, you know, clearly part of the equation here. And now, at, you know, Molly, 30 seconds, the next two years in American politics is going to be like more gridlock, which I'm all for, but just this knife fight ahead of 2024, I think it's going to be, well, if nothing else, pretty interesting. Well, I think people who want things to be better should be happy, even if they wish that it were a bigger red wave or whatnot, because just having at least one chamber in a divided government does mean that people will have to talk to each other more. It won't be so much of this extremism that we've seen. And it's it's good for America. And uh, it gives people some time to think about where they want the country to go in two years. Molly Hemingway, editor-in-chief at The Federalist, Fox News contributor. Molly, thank you. Thank you. The home stretch coming up next on The Guy Benson Show. Some thoughts and memories from last night from the crew. Stay tuned. Home stretch on this, what is it, Wednesday? Is it Wednesday? Is it Thursday? It's Wednesday, isn't it? It's Wednesday. It was a long night. GuyBensonShow.com is our website. Podcast is always free of charge on demand when the show is over. We've had a big show here today. Catch me 
in just a few minutes on Special Report. I'm on the panel. Hopefully I will be quasi-cogent with Brett Bayer and company. Just steps from our studio here at the Fox News Bureau. As we digest what happened last night, of course, we've been doing that all three hours here on today's show. But from a broadcast perspective, from a work perspective, we had a very busy crew here last night, both in D.C. and in New York. Wyatt and I were based here at the D.C. Bureau. I was on standby throughout most of the night. I was here from 7 till about 2. Did some radio, did some television on the coverage. And then once I finally got home, just after 2, I had to write for townhall.com and put my analysis up for the morning, which I did. You can go find it on the tip sheet. Just Google my name and townhall.com. It's pretty easy to find. And that took a while. So I don't think I got into bed until probably 3.30. And then I set my alarm for relatively early because I wanted to make sure I didn't miss any big breaking news on race calls or that sort of thing. So we're just operating on a suboptimal sleep schedule at the moment. Wyatt, I think, was here even a little bit later than I was. But he had the luxury of going home and going right to sleep. But, of course, his wake-up time is 4 a.m. every day for his morning constitutional. Wyatt, did you sleep in at all? 4.15, 4.30? I, I did sleep in, Guy. I mean, I was pretty pretty exhausted, so I slept until about 7.30, 8 oh, o'clock. Wow, that's just luxury right there. You do look well-rested. Meanwhile, up in New York, producer Christine had a big role in Fox News Radio's coverage of the election. She was also there very, very late. And, Christine, you were telling us you could barely sleep. You were so, like, high on life and jazzed by the experience. I have to say, it was a really, really cool experience because um, Fox News Radio had put on a special for, I think we went six hours, seven hours, something like that. And I was tasked with being by the green room uh, for TV. So I was getting all the guests that were, you know, coming off the panels and stuff and bringing them to radio so they can do some interviews. And so I was right there. I saw it all. It was unbelievable. I can't believe they let me do it. Neither can I, actually. But they did. Did someone call out sick? Like, what happened? No, believe it or not, they felt I was the best for the task because I usually don't take no for an answer. Yeah, you're pretty... Pretty relentless. So how did it go? Did you have a good batting average in terms of your requests? I did. I, I think we, we did very, very well. Um, I think we got almost everybody. There were there were a few, like, they, you know, TV said, don't, let's, let's how about you don't bother Carl Rove? Leave him to us tonight. And I totally understood that. Um, but, yeah, no, it was great. And I got to talk to everybody. I got to, like, hear things. It was it was a really, really cool experience. I am exhausted. I don't think I got home until three something. Yeah. And then no, I, I, I feel you. Yeah. So the thing is, throughout the coverage, you were just like barely outside of the main studio, which is where you were hanging out and operating. And of course, I was here on set and getting ready to go on air a couple times and was very busy. But I had my eye on our coverage and I kept being rather nervous. Whenever they would go over to Bill Hammer at the big wall, I half expected to see a certain someone, perhaps flask in hand, 
giggling and touching the wall and having to be dragged out by security. But to my knowledge, unless I missed it, that didn't happen. It did not. I did. I did try to get into the studio at one point. I just wanted to take a picture. That's all I wanted to do. And that was a big no. They told me, no, that wasn't going to happen. But I I don't know. I, I Maybe give me a couple years. I'm going to be on that coverage one day. Like on it, on it? Yeah. I'm not sure in what capacity. Mm. I actually, I had a dream. I know people don't like to hear this, but a couple of weeks ago I had a dream that they put me on the five with you. And it was your first time and my first time. And oh, you're cl- you're clearly dreaming. And the, <laughs> <laughs> but um, the producer kept having to go in your ear in my dream to say, "Guy, you have to talk to her. Like you can't ignore her. <laughs> She's part of the panel." Oh, I see. Like I it wasn't like I had to intervene with you to calm down. I had to acknowledge your existence. Yeah, you were so angry that they put me on on the. Would five. you be in the? You'd be in the Judge Janine seat, wouldn't you? I object to that. No, I, 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 I mean, I would take any seat, but the whole point was you're like, I'm not this. I think it was your first time too, and you're like, no, she's not coming on for my first time. And then in the in the ear, like they kept saying during the break, guy, you have to talk to her. She's part of the panel. Hmm. Okay. Well, thank you for sharing that dream. Was that last night? Did you say, or that was? Earlier in the week. It was earlier in the week, but I know. How much sleep are you working on today here, Christine? Um, I probably finally closed my eyes a little after four. And then I was up maybe 7.30. Oh. Yeah. Yeah, that is rough. And don't forget my age. You know, I know you never I do. Know. I know it's a ballpark, but as you get older, as you age, right, it gets harder and harder apparently. Some sundowning effect. I mean, you were up way past your bedtime. And no, I don't have a bedtime guy. And no mama's juice. None to be had. Yeah, I was sort of at one point wondering if there was any booze around just to have like one drink. But there was just too much going on. I grabbed a slice of pizza at 1130. That was my big indulgence last night. And I will confess quickly that yesterday was a four Coke Zero day. I had four Coke Zeros between the moment I woke up and the moment I went to bed. I am normally a one. If I'm really living dangerously, I'll have a second. Then I had a third last night early in the evening. And then when I realized that I was not going to be in bed anytime soon, It was time for round four. So I think that I put all sorts of interesting, delicious chemicals into my body yesterday. So maybe I should not have as much today. I had one today, and I'm going to call it a day right there. Enough. But I needed something. Although I'm wondering, do I need another one before a special report? Coming into this segment, I forgot what day of the week it was. I can't blank like that with Brett. Maybe it'll be a two Coke Zero day. Well, we'll find out. If I have an extra pep in my step tonight on the panel, you know why. Back here tomorrow for the Thursday edition. See, I got that. Of the Guy Benson Show. Same time, same place. We'll talk to you then.
Put the power of over 100 meteorologists and the worldwide resources of Fox in your hands with the Fox Weather Podcast. Precise, personal, powerful. Subscribe and listen now at foxnewspodcasts.com or wherever you get your podcasts. Listen to the show ad-free on Fox News Podcast Plus, on Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music with your Prime membership, or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts.